I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome to The Brand is Female. For this episode, today I spoke with Amel Krabul, who is an author, politician, business leader, and overall change maker. She serves today as CEO of the Education Outcomes Fund, an initiative that supports governments to help improve the education and skills of children and youth across the world. Amel has held a number of leadership positions in the corporate, political, and not-for-profit sectors for over 25 years, including the Maghreb Economic Forum, Mercedes-Benz, Daimler Chrysler, and the Boston Consulting Group, among others. She was the first woman in history to occupy Tunisia's Minister of Tourism position, and she co-led the country's transition after the Arab Spring, leading to Tunisia obtaining the Nobel Peace Prize in 2015. She recently published a second edition of her book, Coffin Corner, outlining a new leadership culture in line with dynamics of the 21st century. Before we go to my conversation with Emel, let's hear from our partners at TD Women Entrepreneurs who make this season of the podcast possible. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women entrepreneurs achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can support you. Amel, it's a pleasure having you on The Brand is Female. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Eva, for inviting me. I'm honored. I'm honored to be speaking mm-hmm. with you. And I want to start by asking you uh, the first question I always ask guests on the show, and we're going to go back in time a little bit. So as a little girl growing up, um, did you have an idea of what your career would be? Did you already know uh, you would uh, you would work in politics and activism, be involved in education, or were you dreaming of something completely different at that time? It's really interesting because I think my parents say when I was very young, I said, oh, I'm going to be president and I'm going to change this country for better for all the poor people to be better, etc. But in a way, I don't remember that because I remember having, you know, had a grandfather, you know, the father of my mother and my father having been both engaged politically mm-hmm. and suffered a bit under it. To be honest, I said I will never go to politics, but that was more the teenager me. Um, so um, never say never. Um, <laughs> I think I had a phase I wanted to be a prophet. <laughs> Oh, that's good. That's a good goal. I, I don't know, like not, I mean, and people would look at me thinking, yeah, that's probably kind of, where do we apply for that job? Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think I always had a strong spiritual side, um, you know, and and in a way um, that that kind of, yeah, kind of be connecting, be connecting with something bigger uh, was always a topic. And I was always... I don't know, like, I was born in a way with a different brain sometimes, I think. Like, I had this logic thing, you know. I remember being 12 or something, and then the mother of of my best friend, she wanted to have that talk with us about boys, you know. And she's like, oh, you have to be very careful, you know, and boy can, like, date you, and you fall in love, and they do things with you, and then abuse you or misuse you or whatever, and they can break your heart or do whatever with you. And I was, I looked at her and I was like, why do you say this only about boys? Like we could do that too. You know, mm-hmm. I could date a boy and break his heart and make him miserable or abuse him or use him or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then she would look at me and I was like, that was so logic for me. You know, like, why do you say only one side, you know, but you know, society obviously, you know, 
ticks differently. And I had always these questions. <laughs> mm. So you were already challenging kind of the, you know, uh, status quo and, and uh, uh, preconceived yeah, ideas. That's why I thought prophets, they normally challenge the status quo. So I thought that may be a good job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So what led you to um, skip, you know, becoming a prophet and actually focusing on uh, the political world? And was there a conscious decision of wanting to go into politics? Obviously, you had that desire to ask questions and challenge and uh, advance uh, uh, mindsets and conversations. But when, you know, when was that pivotal moment when you decided that was going to be your path? I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, it wasn't so conscious. It came to me, but it came to me at a time when I was ready. So I had a very strong career in the private sector. And then as an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. I was very passionate about transformation and change. So that was actually, you know, you never see your life forwards. You read a red thread backwards. So even in the private sector as an entrepreneur, working with corporation, etc., I was, you know, focused on change and transformation and the human side of change. Um, but in 20... 13, uh, I mean, obviously, I was very passionate about the revolution in Tunisia and was more active online and things like that. But in 2013, I felt like a very strong urge to move into something which more social impact. And mm. at that time, I was CEO of my own company, which um, thankfully was doing really well. And I was like, hmm, I'd like to move into a chairwoman position, you know, as a chairwoman and maybe use 2014, the beginning to um, kind of look at doing maybe something philanthropically or, you know, or a social entrepreneur and, and kind of started like looking around um, and had this idea. I even booked a flight to go to San Francisco to meet a foundation for February, etc. And I was like, oh, let's go into the Christmas, New Year holidays. And then from January on, I'm going to focus on this. Mm -hmm. And I was in, in, in South Africa, I remember, and um, it was the funeral of Nelson Mandela. And I remember you know, going and writing in Cape Town in the book, you know, like the best way to live your legacy is probably to put ourselves out there, you know, and and then I got this call, you know, um, from at the beginning from the advisor and then from the prime minister himself, um, who has just nominated and was building his cabinet and government. And he asked me to join and he said, you know, you want to come and build the first democracy in the Arab world? You have two hours to make your decision and um, call and me that's back. that's an exciting yeah. offer for sure. Yeah, it was like, you know, the movie The Matrix, you know, when yes. he gets the, the red or blue pill, you know, I think it was a red or blue pill moment. Right. And I just couldn't say no. Like, it's funny, everyone I called, including my father, was like, said, no, don't do it. <laughs> Um, you know, you're so successful, you have such an amazing life and you're going to come and have only headaches and sufferings. Um, but I just couldn't say no. Like it was, I felt it in my whole body. It was a big sounding yes. So you actually became uh, the first woman uh, as Minister of Tourism uh, in, in the Tunisian government at that point. And I want to ask you about that experience. The world of politics is stuff for women anywhere around the world. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, as a first woman in, in, in that cabinet, in that government, uh, there were a lot of obstacles and challenges. So what was that experience like for you and what were some of the uh, obstacles that you encountered that maybe you hadn't foreseen? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there were women ministers before, but more like in social sectors and think. And, you know, tourism at the time was almost 20% of Tunisia's GDP. So I was the first woman minister of an economic sector, definitely. Mm. Um, honestly, it's very difficult to explain because I think it was much more difficult than I thought and on other level much easier than I thought. Interesting. And And... And I relate it to a spiritual experience I have recently. And then I go back to answer your question. I was my last trip before COVID because lockdown was in Mecca, you know, in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I did the Umrah, which is like the small Hajj, you know, so it's it's not during Hajj, but you can go, you know, during the year. And, and so it was mind-blowing experience, honestly. Um, I went there, I did the seven times around the Kaaba. And then, you know, when you finalize them, you pray. And during that prayer, there was a moment that it itself reminded me of that experience. So there was a moment where I felt so insignificant, you know, just like a small sand dust in this huge universe amongst so many others there who looked all like wearing the same and white, etc. So... And on the same moment, powerful beyond measure. Hmm. Like I could change the whole world, just me, you know? Mm -hmm. And this is almost like a paradoxical two feelings in one moment. And I think that was the experience of my experience in the Tunisian government because on one side, it was the whole world was watching us. I was always joking. I was like, when I went to press conference, I felt like Obama or something because, you know, that, that year was like, you know, you would have BBC and Al Jazeera and CNN. You're like, the whole world was all the time there because it was a bet in a way. I mean, maybe people yeah. forgot, but 2013, you know, Egypt Egypt went back, the, the, the war in Libya and Syria and Tunisia was actually the only country um, where people were betting, will we manage to, to have a transition or a peaceful one and, or not? And... So we were like 24-7 under such scrutiny from media, from our own people, from the whole Arab world. From And so that was hard. And plus, you know, I, I had to live all these things that women know uh, from politics. Like, yeah, they were, you know, I, I would work until 4 a.m., meet the president the next morning, going out of that meeting like having had slept two hours and they will comment on my hair and shoes in the newspapers, you know, like things that, that are classical, we know. Um, and I think looking at me with a, you know, stricter view as women, like what my achievements are or what I'm, you know, who am I speaking to? What am I saying? Like, so that scrutiny of the whole country and government was sometimes also like even more on me mm -hmm. <laughs> as a person. And then, that's really tough, even emotionally, to kind of hold through it. And and um, and on the other side, I say it was easier because I had a lot of support from a lot of young people in Tunisia. It's it's amazing. People thought I had a PR agency or so. But when people attack me online, you would have these thousands of others who would come and support me. And so I didn't need to pay a comp agency, you know. I, I, <laughs> they I did it for you. Is amazing and I think that was due because I was true to myself look at I I think you cannot learn sailing in a storm you know like you can you know I've, I've had a career of I don't know you know 18 19 years before that 
And I knew it's not the time to learn leadership there. Like, you know, you, you come with whatever you have. You are sailing in a storm and you have to sail the boat. You can't learn sailing in a storm. And so I knew I had to be me, you know, there, there were no one else, you know, and, and, you know, and then there will be another phase in my life where I can hone my leadership and learn and develop. But in that moment, it was just about being me. And I decided to, to, to give it a try just to be me, you know, to be, uh, very spontaneous to, uh, you know, when I visited hotels on the beach, take my shoes off and walk bare feet, which like was all over the newspaper, you know, like things. Yeah. Or, you know, going to concerts and sitting with young people in the back and not in the VIP place. And, and, but not like as a PR cue, I just, you know, just, just wanted to be me. So, it was so that's why I say it was easy because when you decide, take the decision to be you with all the consequences, then at least you are not carrying, uh, you know, on your shoulder all this carefulness, you know. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Um, were there women around you, and and you've mentioned some, you know, women in government in Tunisia before, but uh, prior to you taking on that role, um, and and maybe after you taking on that role, many more after I took the role. So at least I can say that that it influenced. I think I, I mean. I want to be very humble, but I think my influence in the government was so strong and, 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 and publicly that many more women after I left became also ministers. Yeah. And and who would have been role models? Who would have been women that inspired you, maybe marked uh, your path and, uh, you know, influenced some of your work decisions, whether it was in business or in the political world? Yeah, I think, I mean, in, I remember I've had when i when i uh, you know left you know the corporate world to become an entrepreneur um there was i had a mentor like you know barbara and um and she supported me a lot so that was amazing you know um she was very strong herself and 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 kind of helped me not only with networks but hone also my work and and yeah so she, so she was very supportive um so, and I think that was very influential for me to have another very strong woman kind of supporting me to, to, to go there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I had few role models of women leaders before. Like I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm very happy. For example, today I'm, I'm, I can say, you know, I'm friends with Julia Gillard, who was the previous prime minister of Australia, whose speech, you know, uh, about misogyny was very um, influential. And she just wrote a book, actually, about women leadership and that mm -hmm. I uh, recommend to everyone who wants at least to go to politics. Um, so there were women leaders, but also in Tunisia, you know, um, you know, we did Bushamewi, you know, who's, um, you know, many, many others, um, my mother herself, who you know, at age 70, started a new career, you know, like, so I think that I've, I've been lucky to see many women supporting each other. And I would never forget Madeleine Albright's, you know, saying when she said there is a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. And I think there is probably a special place in paradise for women who support other women. So um, that's been always for me, uh, really a big thing. In the beginning of my career, to be honest, I was more mentored and supported by men. Mm -hmm. And to be fair also, I think if I take and balance my whole career now of 25 years, 
when I did my PhD, I think I, I wrote, like I said, I want to dedicate this to people who believed in me more than I believed in myself because they allowed me to grow into shoes that were much bigger than I thought I would be able to grow in. And two of them were women, but all others were men. Hmm. So many more men, to be honest, support me more. But it's statistically, I mean, there are more men in, in positions yeah. of leadership. Yeah. And so um, that that was important. And I think especially one, I had one, when I had my clients, I had one CEO client from whom I learned a very important lesson that I really implemented when I was in government. He said, look, when you hire women in top positions, you almost have to force them to take the job. Hmm. So it's interesting because when you are yourself, like when I was minister, obviously I had a huge pressure of success, you know? If I didn't have that conversation with him, which went much longer and deeper, but to ex for him to explain to me what he meant, but, and, and, and I will translate this now how I implemented it. When you are under a lot of, pressure to succeed and then you have your top leadership team to 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 kind of hire if you have someone you talk to and they say oh i'm not sure you know in my yeah. old me i would not hire that person you know i i have such great pressure to succeed so i need people who come in and they're like super motivated and even then it's going to be challenging mm -hmm. but after that discussion with him i looked at it differently and it was true because my, my cabinet was 50% equal. I think it was the first also like 50% women, 50% men. And every man I hired, like to say, okay, I'm going to promote you in this role or so. They all said, yes. You know, like how right come away. someone only asked me now, you know, I'm ready for since ever. Right. And every woman, woman I asked, I had to convince. Wow. And in the past, I would have maybe not hired them. But but having that CEO client of mine telling me his stories, he's like, no, you have to tell them you believe in them. You have to tell them they have the potential. They just, every woman, like I remember like two of them, my chief of comm, she all, still tells the story and someone else who led the biggest, you know, tourism board. I had to bring them home to sit them at my table. And I was like, you know what? I know you can do this. Look at your CV, you know. And then I was like, you can't do a job until you've done it. Okay. Can you listen to me? You know, you never can do a job yeah. after you've done it, not before you've done it. And I, I think you have the potential. Um, connecting to that, what are some leadership qualities that women bring to a workplace, whether it's the corporate world or uh, politics that are specific to women as opposed to male leadership qualities? I'm not sure I would say there are specific, honestly, like I'm, I see today gender more as a process than as a, you know, like I think every one of us has masculine and feminine qualities. If you right. define masculine qualities as like driven and goal oriented and, you know, and feminine qualities are more communal, like caring and, you know, participative. Mm -hmm. Um, there are probably men who have stronger feminine qualities than masculine qualities, you know, and, and women who have, you know, so I think each of us, if you take hundred percent, we probably can, can mix myself personally. I think I'm, I'm, I'm probably 50, 50 or so. Um, mm -hmm. so in general, I think even men who had stronger feminine qualities struggled, you know, to get to the top, you know, 
So what I think is for women makes it more difficult is that you are in a catch-22 thing because if you have too many masculine qualities, you're too strong. (laughs) Right, yes. And if you have too many feminine qualities, you're too weak for the job. And like there is no... Middle ground. Middle ground. And so I think... So for me, it's not really about, I mean, yeah, we talk about today's world needing more participative leadership and not always in politics when we see what's sometimes happening, but let's let's hope for the best that, you know, like this also like with the climate change and with the environmental, you know, disasters, et cetera, that we say we've been maybe too goal-driven, too, you know, you know, kind of, focused in a certain way to achieve growth and, and, and results and profits and not kind of systemic and inclusive and environmental and caring enough. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. those qualities have to be increased both in men and women. Absolutely. Um, I do I do believe that that women still face a lot of barriers to be able to live those qualities mm-hmm. because of never being, you know, right. And for me, if there is a message that is for me important also for women is that it's almost impossible to be successful and liked. Hmm. So success and likability are positively correlated for men and negatively correlated for women. And I always love this example from the Columbia University where they showed like, I think it was Heidi Reusner, so like a, a case study and they just changed the first name, you know, to Howard. And mm-hmm. then half of the student had Heidi, half of the student had Howard. And then they say, tell us about the person. Both groups say, oh, very competent, very professional, etc." And those who have Howard, they say, oh, I'd love to go play golf with him. I'd love to spend time with him, work for him. And those who have Heidi, they're like, mm, not sure, maybe too powerful, maybe too strong. And it's the same wording. It's just the first name that is different. And so in a way, I think that if I knew that earlier, it would have saved me also some time and energy because I think women have a tendency of wanting to be liked. We we grow up yeah. in this, you know, wanting harmony, wanting to be liked in a way. And um, if you know that actually the more successful you are, the less liked you are by scientific research without or your own doing yeah. yeah then i would have built more like a maybe a very small like friend and family circle where i'm liked and not expect as much from my work environment and be able to live better with rejection and with maybe bullying and you know sexual comments or whatever you know yes i i, f- I find that very interesting what you bring up and um i think it's often uh, you know, I've seen the question posed in the way of, do you prefer being powerful or being liked? And in the case of women, it's almost like, never mind. If you're going to have any level of success, a huge chunk of the the population around you will, will dislike you as a result. Um, how can we change that? How can we make uh, mindsets evolve on that front? Yeah, it's a very good question, huh? I mean, probably by women supporting women, honestly. I mean, I know it sounds maybe cheeky, but... And seeing also role models, like I... Um, it's 
very, it's very weird. Last night I watched a Netflix on Netflix a movie uh, about I think a lawyer who fought for uh, an immigrant from Afghanistan to to be able to stay in the U.S. I, I yeah. And there was a phase where her ex-husband was like blaming her for, you know, not taking enough care of her child and stuff. So we all carry this thing of not being like, honestly, when I was in government, I saw my children only every second weekend and um, during the holidays when they came to Tunisia. Um, and in a way, everyone makes you feel you're a bad mother, you know? Mm. And... And you kind of internalize that at some point. It took me really a lot of self-work to shed that burden down. Mm-hmm. And this, I'm not good enough. I'm not good mother enough. I'm not good wife enough. I'm, you know. This season of our podcast is made possible with the support of TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs. Confidently building your business takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaboration-based approach. They work with both internal and external partners that can provide education, financing, mentoring, and community support. TD employees are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. They can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, or mentorship. And they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. I want to talk, so you brought up um, Education Outcomes Fund, of which you are the CEO. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about what the organization is focused on, but also what drew you to the cause of education specifically? Yeah, thank you for asking that because I think that, you know, I say it in, in, in a TED talk where I say like education is, is, is the most important infrastructure we have or educated minds are the most important infrastructure we have. I think that for women to be and girls to be educated and, and, and you know, which means they have more opportunities in life and be financially independent is the biggest probably uh, freedom act, you know, and an and act to not only for them, but also for, for their societies, you know. Um, and so for me, being passionate about social change and, and women's rights and and also kind of governments to deliver better for their citizen, um, education seemed to be really a place where, where that could come together, mm-hmm. uh, especially because it's a bit of a neglected cause, you know, like climate change is big there, health has been big, and now with COVID even more. Yeah. Education has been always seen like, ah, oh, that small national problem and, and not really in the global. And I'm, I'm also grateful, this is another man who supported me, but for, to Gordon Brown, who's the previous UK Prime Minister and UN Envoy for Global Education, who invited me to join the Education Commission, um, you know, uh, in 2015, which had the aim to kind of bring education to the global level and really, um, you know, pass the message of a huge learning crisis because by 2030, and this was before COVID, half of the world children would have been failing to learn and, and, and many, many, many girls. I mean, now we know that, for example, with this recent crisis, 20 million girls who've left school will never go back, you know? Wow. And and because they get married, they, you know, 
pregnant, etc. You know, you know, sent to work in homes, etc. So, um, so that's that's one one piece of the motivation. But I knew that we can only change this by working on the systemic change, like in the way. And and so it was really great luck also to 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 be able to to meet you know Ronnie Sir Ronald Cohen who's been like a godfather for impact investing and comes from that world and to think how can we bring how can we change the way we fund how can we change the way money is spent because that's where the power lies you know uh, be it from government be it from philanthropy be it on the capital market and kind of transform the way money is spent to deliver on social and developmental challenges and education being one of them. And so it took a really big bat three years ago. Uh, we're doing something for the first time. It's an ambitious effort to get 10 million children and youth um, into education and employment with a strong focus on girls. Mm-hmm. Um, but doing it in a not so sexy way because it's not funding those amazing entrepreneurs directly, but really by changing the way how governments spend their money by focusing more on results, you know? So, um, and, and that's been building the plane while flying, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for three years, because not only we're the first who do it at that scale and globally, it's also a very challenging environment. And in a sector like education that to be honest, sometimes, is still conservative, you know, like I always take the example, I say, if we take a doctor from hundred years ago and, and put her in a hospital ward today, um, they wouldn't be able to do much. You know, if we take a teacher from hundred years ago, sometimes said from thousand years ago, probably, and put them in a classroom, they, they'll still be able to do a lot. So in a way, you know, we haven't really had that massive change that probably is needed where today there is so much uncertainty we have to teach learn you know children how to learn to learn basically rather mm-hmm. than learning some topics and so in a way that's kind of the adventure we are on like we we're supporting governments to change to achieve more results um not just you know bodies in classrooms but right. kind of edu- achieve educated minds with sometimes very limited resources um, and 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 bringing in money from the capital market to support that, um, so it's very 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 challenging but passionate you know endeavor. Yeah, and, and probably very rewarding as well. Um, and we spoke about education. We spoke mm-hmm. about um, your your career in politics. So. I'm curious to know what your advice would be to a young woman today anywhere in the world who is dreaming of having a position uh, in, in, in politics somewhere around the world. No, I think, I mean, I, I encourage everyone. You know, I tell young people the highest form of volunteering is to run for office. Mm-hmm. I think if I compare my times between private sector or entrepreneur, being in government, and now, let's say, I mean, we are, we're now part of the UN, which was great news. We, we joined the UN as a yes. trust fund, specifically UNICEF. Thank you. Thank you. Because it's, you know, like having a big institution believe also in what we do. It's kind of giving us even more headwind. And so in, in, in a way, I think still, if I look at that, 
I probably had the most impact when I was in government, you know, because that's where you really can change things for the better or worse for citizen, you know. And so I, I, I do believe that that's important. I think I would recommend to give it a try because it's, as I said, when I said it's, it's much harder than I thought, but it's also easier when I thought because you, you just things look big but once you can be in a team you can work together and and then just put one step in front of the other um you know you, you can achieve it it's like a marathon it's not a sprint you know and so and you and fail a lot early because the younger you are the more you can fail which i think girls sometimes are too perfectionists they don't like failing you know yeah and the other advice i would give is to work a lot on mental resilience mm. You know, I, I do a lot of mindfulness, um, you know, almost daily. And 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 um, that's been really important to have a strong core in you um, because it's tough. It's really tough in terms of. But once you have that strong core, it's really interesting whatever storm is around you doesn't touch that core. And so for me, it's been mindfulness and spending time in nature and mm -hmm. spending time with my girls. Um, but for other people, they have their own avenues. Um, I wouldn't recommend alcohol and drugs though, but you know, like it's, it's just, you know, healthy avenues to, to strengthen the core. I think that's really, at least for me, has been really important so that, that, that you can kind of weather the storms outside. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you foresaw my next question that was going to be how you stay grounded and how you, you find peace amidst, you know, the, the, the busyness in your life and uh, the, the chaos I'm, I'm sure sometimes that surrounds you. Um, so I'll ask you what is my favorite question to ask guests on the show. And that is, what do you wish women would do more of? You know, yeah, be connected to to the super strong you in you, you know. And maybe less, less dependent on validation from outside. Mm. You know, and yeah, for me, there are two phases in life because you can't be a horrible person running around and thinking what other people think about me is not my business because at least for me, I think there are two phases. Like there is a phase where it's good to be open to feedback. It's good to challenge yourself. It's good to have a mentor who challenge you. Um, Barbara, that mentor I talked about, for example, I remember every time I had a conflict with a colleague or the client, the first question she would always ask is like, what is your own contribution? You know, don't complain about other, what, how did you contribute to this? So like, I was challenged so much, you know, always to think, what what did I do wrong? What is my own contribution? What could I do better? And I think for a phase that was really important, you know, for me to increase self-awareness and self-reflection. But I think there is a point where we have also to stop, like almost like not stop doing it completely, but, you know, as, as a major. And then moving to, especially when you move into becoming someone who wants to influence social change or change in general, because it means you're going to go against the grain of many people, mm -hmm. to a place where you think what other people think about me is their business and not mine, you know? So I know it sounds like almost part, and keeping your self-reflection, but in a way, maybe in a more protected space, maybe for people 
to tell you still the truth and challenge you, but knowing that actually most people will probably be against you, you know, mm-hmm. if you are trying, like now we're, we're doing something, look, we're telling governments the money you spend on education will be 100% paying for learning outcomes, mm. you know, you put it in this outcomes fund and actually other people, private sector will take, you know, kind of the risk of delivering, it should be a dream, like to tell a tax, you know, taxpayers will be paying only for results and no waste, you know, yeah. we should have like, Use outside here, you know, like waiting to do this. Absolutely. And the mindset shift is so big that it's it's like we have few champions who are supporting us, but there are so many against us, you know, because it's just changing the word how people work. And then, and I'm happy I've had that phase in my life where, you know, all these phases that I know, no, once you do change things, people will criticize you from morning till evening. Mm-hmm. And it's much easier to say why things will fail and why they will succeed. And so that's where you have to to kind of be more happy with you who you are and, and less dependent from outside validation. Well, thank you so much, Emily. It was absolutely an honor meeting you. Uh, congratulations for everything you've achieved. And I'm uh, very excited to hear what's next, uh, including with the Education Outcomes Fund. And uh, thank you for speaking with me on the Brandon's email today. No, thank you very much, Eva. I enjoyed our conversation a lot. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, it makes a difference if you subscribe, uh, give us a review. Thank you to TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. I look forward to speaking to you in a week with a new guest on the show. Take care.